So we've kind of finished last week, if you weren't here, this look at these two beasts. And I, I want to get this picture back into your mind that, um, you know, both of these beasts are representative of how Satan is at work in our world today. And uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. You just turn on your television and you see it and you think to yourself, my goodness gracious, what is going on in our world? We have very, very good friends uh, for years and years and years who, um, believe it or not, uh, he was assigned to Belgium of all places. And so for the last couple of years at Christmas time, we get Belgium chocolates that are really, really good. And <clears throat> we hear stories about what Belgium is like. I had no idea that where, right where he works today is now shut down. There's tanks, tanks driving by. There's armored cars driving by. Why? Because we're watching a world and we're saying, How, what in the world is going on? And... Um, you know, what's going on is what Revelation is, is pointing us to, is the, the rising up of people, political entities, and religious entities. And in some cases, those two come together, right, in a way that is aimed at, at doing what? At coming after specifically the offspring of the woman, Christians, Christians particularly. And uh, so... When we look at what's going on, there's a part of us that jumps back and can get afraid. We can say, what kind of a world is my grandchild growing up in or my kids growing up in? Chapter 14 is meant to contrast, all right? So these two beasts got their feet stuck on the, the earth and the sea. And when chapter 14 begins, it begins in a beautiful way because it wants to take us up above that. And I want you just to notice how this chapter begins because it's contrasting. You've got these beasts that are going to come against, right? We have a lamb that stands for. And uh, this morning when we started worship and Daniel was, was helping us sing that, greater is he that is living in you than he that is living in the world. That's the picture that you start off with in chapter 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion. Okay? See, see the distinction here? Here are the two beasts. Where are they? They're on earth. One foot on the earth, one foot on the sea. Now up above them, on Mount Zion. We'll turn and look. So the positioning is, is important. It's meant to say, above Greater is he that is living in you than he that is living in the world. The, the, the beasts and Satan have been given right reign and authority in this dominion. But they are under the dominion of the Lamb. And that's exactly what John sees when he turns and looks and sees the Lamb up on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is important to the Jews because it is the, the home of, of the temple. It's the home of David. It's the home of the promise. For a Jew, Mount Zion marks that place that we would point to and say, this, this reminds us of who we are. It gives us identity. We are the people of the covenant, those who belong to him. For the early Christians, Mount Zion also took on a beautiful significance. Why? Because for a Christian, remember the early Christians didn't just completely separate themselves from the Jews. They didn't say, well, we're, we're now going to start having complete. There was, a, there was a lot of Judaism that came over into that early apostolic period. And for good reason, right? Mount Zion, the temple, 
would point to what? The fact that we are under a covenant, a covenant fulfilled through Jesus Christ, right? A covenant that's been sealed by his blood and his resurrection. And it's to him that we belong. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a messianic uh, uh, Christian church, but uh, not all of them, but many of them have just beautiful worship services because they take some of that old, ancient Jewish practice and they just Christianize it. And you, you begin to, to see how Rosh Hashanah, you know, the beginning of a new year where the Jews would celebrate and say, thank you, God, for your, your provisions, actually was pointing forward to Jesus, right? Uh, how Pasach, the Passover, and the Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus, the Day of Atonement, what did you do? You put, the priest put his hands on the goat and said, go out into the wilderness to die. And so Jesus is taken out of the city to Calvary, to the dump, to the hill, to die. And all of it pointed forward to Jesus. So for both the Jews and the early Christians, Mount Zion has significance because it points to the, the reality that we're under the covenant promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I looked and behold standing upon Mount Zion. Now, we, we don't see this quickly, but I, I want to just highlight the word for you. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. We just read it like that. Yep, stood the Lamb. Kind of an interesting thing. Um, when you think about the word stand, what does it mean to take your stand? Sometimes we'll use that idiom, right? Take your stand, make a stand. Well, here, the, the verb that's used is, is kind of interesting. It's, it's this word right here, estos, estos. Now, I looked, and there is the arnon, the lamb, estos, standing upon the, the temple mount. We don't think much about it, but there, there's a root there that's worth kind of highlighting for you. Estos has the same root as this verb, histemi, histemi, which, is, which underlies one of the key New Testament phrases, anastasis. You can see it all the way through. Anastasis is what I would say to my Greek Orthodox friends. You know, so uh, on, on Easter, the, the Greek Orthodox set a different date, right? The Western church, us, we go by the lunar calendar, right? So the, the first Sunday after the uh, e eternal equinox <clears throat> is Easter, Right? We follow that. The, East, the Eastern church sets a different day. So when, whenever my Eastern friends would walk through uh, the line on Sunday mornings, because uh, we, you know, we welcome them to the Lutheran church. They're, they're all right. Uh, he would look at me and he would say, Christos Anastasis. And I would say, Anastasis, amen. And uh, what it means is risen. All right? And so when you point it all the way through, the one standing is the risen one. The one standing is the one who was put to death and now stands tall above the, the beasts and the enemy who actually have their authority from him. And so what, what John is, is witnessing, what he's being shown is this picture of a God who is in control even when we turn on our televisions and we think to ourselves, what in the world is going on? Somebody's got to stop this. And it's almost humorous right now watching, I mean, I'm, I watched a little bit of the, I don't know if you guys ever watched this CNN kind of news deal. It's humorous for me to watch. You know, here you have a, you have a, a, a political leader. I'll try to be 
politically correct? <laughs> you have a president, all right, who stands up and, and he, can't, he cannot say, he can't utter the words radical Islam. He just can't say it. He can't say ISIS. What does he say? Why? It's softer. It is. Islamic State in Syria, ISIS. All right. Why Syria? Debek. What's significant about Debek? Debek is the place where Armageddon is supposed to take place according to what? Islamic teachings. So Syria is significant, right? What, what is radical Islam trying to do? Initiate Armageddon. How do you do that? You fight against the Western world. You provoke the Western world. You start a war that's going to end up finally with Jesus, they call him Isa, coming back to fight against and kill Christians and Jews and allow the Islamics to finally gain superiority. Why does our president say ISIL, Islamic State in Lebanon? It separates it. And so it softens it. And the attempt just in the language is to soften it. Our war is not with Islam. Right? Well, as we talked about last week, there are moderate Islamists, there's reformist Islamics, but make no doubt about it, radical Islam is out to start holy war and to initiate the return of Jesus and the defeat of the Western world. And so it it I look at that and I think to myself, what in the world is a political leader doing? Oh, there's a beast. And that beast is under authority, right? And it's not the authority of God. It's the authority of the dragon who is, guess what, under the authority of the lamb. And so when we watch all this stuff happening, what John is saying here is, guess what? God is still in control. Does it mean that you won't physically die? Not necessarily. Does it mean that, that we're going to achieve military might over? Not necessarily. What it means is that this God has a plan, and this is part of his plan. He's authorized the beast, but he's also given it limitations because he stands above it. That's what John is seeing. As he looks, he sees uh, with the lamb the 144,000 standing with and notice that the name of the Father uh, and the name of the Lamb are written on the foreheads, okay? Uh, part of that is significant to me. The 144,000 we've looked at before, right, are um, all of those who belong to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, right? Um, so, so the numerical value, you know, 12,000 times 12, 144,000 is, is a combination of 12s and 10s to represent the perfect, the perfect number of people who belong to Jesus Christ uh, through faith. We've got two names on our foreheads. Now, they're not, I, I mean, they're not on our foreheads, right? This is symbolic imagery, just like we saw with the number of the beast. Right hand, forehead, symbolic. So the 144,000 have the name of, of the Lamb and the Father's name, okay? Um, part of what's going on in, in the, the, the Holy War that we're watching around us now is 
uh, for an, an Islamic person. Um, to call Jesus God is the greatest blasphemy of all. It's a monotheistic religion. And so what they would say of us here today is, we have come and we are blaspheming the name of God. What the Bible says is, you receive the name of the Father and the Son and living within you, the Holy Spirit, right? All three persons present. And uh, by having both names on our foreheads, what John is suggesting here, or what God is suggesting through John is equality. The Father and the Son, you belong to them both. Why? There are two persons of the one God, the Trinity. And so um, the picture that John is receiving is kind of a beautiful picture of this, this God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who have dominion over the, um, uh, the work that the beast is trying to do. There's some sounds that he begins to hear. And uh, each one of them, I think, is, is significant. He says, as I watch this lamb and I, I see the 144,000 with him, I now begin to hear a voice from heaven. And the voice is like the roar of many waters. Can I make note of this? The roar of many waters. Like the sound of loud thunder. Second thing. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and singing a new song before the throne. Okay? So kind of three, three things there, all of which kind of go together to paint a picture of where chapter 14 is taking us. All right? The sound, the sound of waters. All right? So I hear this voice. I hear massive waters. Think about in history, all right, a time when you would have absolutely heard the sound of many waters, what would that time be? A flood, right? When God enacted a flood, um, it was the result of God looking at the world, looking at his creation, and saying, I've got to bring mankind back to myself. But mankind has gone so far away from me, the only way that I'm going to bring men back to myself is I'm going to enact a flood that will literally kill, wipe out the earth and all of those who do not have faith in me and I will begin again, right? It's the cleansing of the world. Um, when you hear that, that word, you remember the story because after the flood is completed and Noah and his family step out of, out of the ark, a promise is made to them. And the promise is that not again will I destroy the world in this way, right? So when John hears the sound of many waters, we have that promise in our mind. We're saying, well, are you going to send a new flood? No. But the same thing is getting ready to happen. Where chapter 14 is taking us to, it's taking us to the end of the world. It's showing us that the story, as bad as it looks today, and as, as, as bad as, as it's going to become, because the good news is <clears throat> things are going to get worse. All right? I mean, that's, that's the story of the Scripture. Not things are going to get better. Things are going to get worse. How does it end? Really, really well. With what? A cleansing of the world. 
This time it will be by what? Fire. The destruction of the physical earth, but the same result as the flood, a cleansing of the earth and the 144,000 are those who, like Noah and his family, step onto the new earth as it's remade. Okay? So that's the first sound that uh, John is hearing, and it's pointing us to the fact that this lamb has the whole of the story in his hands, taking us to the very end. The second sound that he hears is a sound of thunder, loud thunder. Why, why is that significant? Where do we hear loud thunder? It's kind of an interesting one. It's, to me, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a kind of a neat picture. Get yourself back up on a mountain. All right, you're on Sinai. Your name is Moshe, Moses. As you approach God, you know that you can't look upon him or what will happen to you? You'll die. But God has given you invitation to come into my presence. So you come into his presence and you literally see only the shadow of God and you are surrounded by the sound of thunder, right? And what is God getting ready to give to Moses? The ten Debarim of Zoach, life, right? Today we call them the ten commandments. We rip them out of schools and courtrooms and try to pretend that they don't exist. Um, but guess what? They're as much alive today as they were when they were given to Moshe the first time. It's always interesting to me when you read the story of Moses going up onto that mountain. Notice that the first time the ten, what we call the ten commandments are referred to, they're not called the ten commandments. Just notice that in your scriptures. They're called the ten words of God. Words because W-O-R-D-S pointing to the capital W-O-R-D, Jesus, who will come and bring us life. The words of God were meant to do what? They weren't meant to be this. You shall not do, you shall not do that. You no, shall not do you know, I mean, that's the picture that the world likes to paint is here's this God up there who takes all of our fun away and makes life very boring because he shakes our finger and says, you can't do that and you can't do that. He takes all the fun stuff away. I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's the opposite of that. Ten words of life. Here's what God is interested. I want to give you words that when they live in you, they will give you a way to live that is beautiful, that will give you joy, peace, that will give you satisfaction, a true sense of identity to whom you belong. Live under these words and you will experience life with me. They're actually relational words. That's what they're meant to be. Not a God saying blah, 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 but a God saying, listen, I'm going to give you a path to walk down that will actually do what? Help you live in a relationship with me. No wonder... No wonder, what were we talking about? Beasts? Entities that rise up? That say, get those words off the wall. Get those words out of our school. Get those words. In fact, one, one judge, literally, went so far as to say, those are dangerous words. Get those dangerous words out of our kids' lives. I'm like, my goodness gracious, that sounds like dragon talk to me. Because guess what they are? They are words of life that God wants to give. And so as God, put, kind of put it together, as God cleanses the, the, the world, right? Um, there's your sound of waters. He speaks a word of life to us. 
guess what he's getting us ready for? Relationship with him that walks according to the way that he initially established for his people. And so what John is hearing, literally he's seeing the lamb, he's seeing the lamb take us now to the last day in which we are going to celebrate the fact that we have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's one more sound, the sound of harps, harps, playing a new song. Um, literally, the, the sound of the harps here would be the sound of what? Of worship, right? So if you put it all together, you have this, this new song that is being sung. It's a new song. Why? Because... Everything is being made new, a new earth, a new relationship with God in which our whole lives are a form of worship to him. We belong to you, Lamb, and you belong to us, and we have perfect harmony. And so that's, that's really what John is saying is we're taking you, if you, as bad as things look to you today, just know that there's an eternity that awaits you where the earth is cleansed, where a new song uh, will be sung. By the way, do you know in our liturgy, Lutheran liturgy, where we, where we capture this new song? It's kind of interesting. The, uh, the early Christians, about third century, began to grab pieces of the Bible and turn them into liturgy. Okay? And um, <clears throat> if you're part of the Lutheran church, then you know that we're we're kind of a liturgical church. We retain things like the Apostles' Creed and confession and absolution. And this thing, this new song, we've got it in our liturgy. Um, liturgy grew up during a period of time where there was no preaching. And the early church said, how can we tell the whole story of God without a preacher? Where did the preachers go? Well, remember the Rom Romans drove them underground. And so now we've got no preachers, but we want to hear the word. So the liturgy grows up and tells the story of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. When we get ready to celebrate communion, quite often we'll use this little piece called the preface, right? To you guys, it sounds something like this. With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we evermore laud and praise you, singing, and then we'll burst out in a song. That piece of liturgy comes from that right there. It comes from this section of scripture that says, we here on earth are joining together with the beings of heaven, right? Who are mentioned right here, the four living creatures, all of heaven, all of those who've gone before us here on earth today, we join together with them evermore, forever, praising you and singing. We point forward to the new song that we'll sing. This is where it comes from, right out of scripture. So we've got the harpists playing, singing this new song, and before, uh, before the um, uh, throne are the four living creatures and the, the elders who we've seen uh, before in the book of Revelation, um, uh, lead this, this new song. Another kind of interesting fact, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed uh, from the earth. It's kind of an interesting way to say that. No one could learn this new song. The word learn here is, um, 
is an interesting one in Greek. Um, it, it may not make sense to you too, but we'll unfold it for you. It says, no one can methane, no one can methane this new song except those who have been, and the word here is agorosamenos, purchased, boughten by the lamb, right? So if you put these two thoughts together, no one can learn this new song. Um, when you look in your Greek New Testament and you want to find the, the word for a disciple, go you therefore and what? Make what? Disciples of all the world. The word for disciple is mathetuo. Where does it come from? This verb right here, mathane. No one can mathane, learn this word, except those who have been purchased. In the Greek world, the way that you learned something, very different than the way we do it in our world today. Today, we send our kids off. Um, <clears throat> some of you are, have, have kid, kiddos going off to college. Some of you are in college, right? They're beautiful, they're beautiful years for our kids. They really are. I tell our kids nowadays, I'm like, take as many years of college as you possibly can. Five, six, it doesn't matter. However many you can get in there. Because when you get out, you're going to work till you die. So, I mean, just stay <laughs> as long as you, as you can in that thing. Isn't that true? Oh, my goodness. But we send kids off to college. We send them off to school. How did you learn in the ancient world? If I wanted to learn how to be, you know, a, a, a pilot or a plumber or a, how did I do it? I go live with that person, right? And I watch them. Like if I, if I wanted to be a, a farmer, I'd, I'd live with Mike. And he'd say, this is, this is a cow. I'd be, okay, okay. <laughs> Don't put your hand there. Okay. <laughs> but that's how you learn. You live with somebody, and, and that was called, in the, in the secular world, that was called mathetain. That's how you obtained knowledge. You became a disciple of someone. So when the, when the uh, New Testament writers were inspired, they grabbed that exact word and brought it over into the Bible. And what it's meant to say is, the only way you'll learn this new song is what? By living with, having a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only way to learn this song. You can't fake it. You live in a relationship with him. Or you don't. If you don't, guess what? You don't know the new song. If you do, you'll sing the new song. How long? For eternity. How do we know that? Well, that's the second verb. Those who have been agorasamanas. I kind of underline that first part of the word, agora, because when you, when you go into uh, Rome or Greece or Turkey and you walk around, one of the sites that you're going to see um, is you're going to always be taken to what's called the agora. It's the marketplace. Okay. So it's a little bit different than Conestoga Mall or, you know, some of the fancier malls around. It's an outdoor theater, okay? And the interesting thing about Agoras is they initially did not begin as marketplaces. They began as places where what was being given away was wisdom, philosophy, politics. And so you would go out into the Agora to, to learn. You would say, I want to listen and I want to learn a new way of life, okay? And um, so, you know, nowadays you turn on TV when you have insomnia and you can't sleep and you get, 
you know, some of the people telling you how you can make tons of money selling real estate or gold or whatever. Um, and you're like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should do that. I, uh, maybe I'll, honey, wake up. We're gonna, we're gonna go back to sleep. Okay, yes, ma'am. Um, Anyway, people would do that. They'd go out into the Agora because this guy's talking about this and I want to learn about it. This guy's talking about this and I'll learn about it. This guy's talking about it. It became the marketplace because as people started to gather, the merchants said to themselves, hey, there's people around here. We can make a lot of money. And so they began to sell stuff out in the Agora. All right. How do I mathetain? How do I learn? I go to the agora of God, all right? And the verb here means that you're actually the object to be purchased. And what's happened is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has says, I have purchased you with my blood. I've made you my own. And as we come into relationship together, you will mathain, learn my new song, and you will be singing it forever in eternity with me. That's the picture that we're trying to present here. Uh, through these words, okay? Um, this is kind of interesting language that follows. It says, it is these, 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That kind of gets people confused, or it can get you confused. It is these, the 144,000 who he's referring to, who did not defile themselves with women, for they are virgins. So, question, does that mean that only males will be on the new earth? 144,000, it is these who, what does it say? Did not defile themselves with women, for they, they are virgins. So will only men be on the, the new earth? Well, no, because nothing will get done. Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean we, we know that, right? <laughs> so again, why does he use that language? Well, um, he's speaking again uh, in a way to try to help us picture what does it mean to be um, a, a virgin who has not defiled yourself with women. The answer, actually, I think is, is kind of uh, interestingly found in this chapter here. Second Corinthians, um, go over to chapter 11, and there's, there's kind of an interesting picture that's painted there. First Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians 11. Okay. This is Paul. The, the, um, the focus here in, in Corinth is uh, on what does it mean for him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ over against false apostles. And uh, he begins this chapter, and we'll just read just a, a few of the early verses. He says, I wish, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Okay? Whenever Paul uses that word foolishness, don't listen to it the way a Westerner does. For us, foolishness is joking around or being silly. 
for Paul, foolishness is something beyond that. I am a fool for Christ. What is he saying? I live under the wisdom of Jesus Christ, not the wisdom of the world. Right? That's to be a fool. To be a fool means, in a spiritual sense, means I will live under the wisdom of God, even if that costs me something in our world today. So when you're, when you're a parent and you say to your son or your daughter, no, you may not buy that video game. And they say to you, well, everybody has that video game. I want it for Christmas. And you go, no, it doesn't reflect who we, who we are. The, when, you, when you get into that video game, it is not who we are. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thankful that, I mean, we raised our kids in a day and age, kind of before video games. We, just, we had those... Remember that you could go on a magazine and you could buy a subscription for uh, music, like CDs. They'll send you CDs. Learning experience for my kids. They did. They said, we want to buy that. I said, okay. You can buy that. But I have to approve every one of those that you buy. I mean, you can't just go on there and get whatever you want. I've got to look at it. Okay. And if you don't do that, not only are you going to pay for it, you'll pay for it, but you'll lose it. Okay. So it went really well for about two or three months, and then one month, some stuff came in the mail. I opened it up. I went, hmm, yeah, no, this didn't get approved. And uh, there was this, this group, this guy, this singer, his name is Usher. Okay. So my son literally, literally tried this. He goes, well, Dad, we have ushers in the church. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, they don't, they don't exactly sing these kind of lyrics in the church, all right, son? No, you cannot have that, son. That's foolishness. I mean, people think of you like, what are you, what's wrong with you? I'm a fool for Jesus Christ. In contrast to the Old Testament says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's true foolishness, is to deny God. So Paul is saying here, I, I want you to bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. I'm going to speak to you in a way that is not worldly. He says, do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaim or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received or you accept a different gospel than the one that you accepted you put up with it readily enough indeed I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles okay so you had people coming into Corinth who called themselves super apostles. They didn't say that of themselves. They didn't say, oh, I'm a super apostle. But they said, we, we are apostles and we bring some, some wisdom that's greater than what Paul and his band have. And what they were doing is they were leading people away from the true word of God. And what I think is, I think two things are significant about these words. The first one ties back to what we just read in Revelation. I betrothed you to one husband. So he's saying to, to all of us, men and women, men and women, all of us are betrothed to one husband. Okay. I'm a guy. I think I'm betrothed to a husband. Yes, you are, Luke. 
you are, I am, as much the bride as a female is the bride. We are together the bride of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, opposite of that, when Revelation talks about the 144,000 are what? Male virgins. Okay? That male represents what? Both male and female. Why? Because we're virgins. We were presented as a pure virgin to Christ. What does that mean? Is we we by the blood of Jesus Christ have been made pure. That's what purifies us. Trust me when I tell you your works do not purify you. You can try as hard as you want. You can beat yourself. You can do whatever you will never be pure before God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what makes us pure pure virgins to him, right? How do we defile ourselves? <clears throat> you defile yourself when what? When we as, as God's redeemed people live in a way that what gives ourselves over to the ways of the world. We're constantly doing it. And God is constantly through his blood and forgiveness purifying us, right? And what he's saying to, to, the, to the early Christians here in Corinth is be careful because guess what? Some of that actually comes through through, again, that agency, the church. You have super apostles who are deceiving you or telling you, this is a good thing to do. This is okay to do. This is right to do. It's no different than the church today. And so when I, when I talk to, to kids and to teens and to kids that are in college, these words are really, really significant if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed. Well, guess what? Take a religion class, you pick the college. Go ahead and pick one out. Take a religion class in it, and they will proclaim to you someone other than the Jesus Christ who is proclaimed in this church. I promise you that. Okay. Um, and he's saying, are they, does the professor set themselves up as a super apostle? Yes. I'm a PhD, and I know. This is who Jesus is. He's not the divine son of God. You can call him a prophet, you can call him a teacher, you can call him a good person. He's not the divine son of God. If you hear someone preach a different gospel than the one preached in the scriptures, stand firm on what the scriptures teach. Absolutely. If somebody gives you a different gospel than the one that you received, all right, if somebody tells you, well, it's really by your works that you're saved, you, you have to do this to be saved, run from it. Because it's a different gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you're made a pure virgin only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, and, and the disciples knew that. So flip back over to uh, Revelation and kind of listen to it that way. The 144,000 are those who have not defiled themselves with women. Now in this case, the virgins are all of us. Men and women who've not defiled ourselves with who are women. The woman here represents what? The world, right? The ways of the world that take us away from the way of life that Jesus Christ has given us. Can I say to myself, that's me? I mean, honestly, can I say, look, I've never defiled myself with the ways of the world. I've never gotten caught up in the ways of the world. I have, haven't I? In fact, we do. And anybody who tells me differently is deceiving themselves. 
If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, right? So what happens is we try to deceive ourselves. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm working really hard at this stuff. No, we get sucked up into the world, and all of a sudden we defile ourselves. So the 144,000 are those who have not defiled themselves. They're pure virgins. Once again, how is it that I can stand before God and say, I have not defiled myself? Only what? In Jesus Christ. Only in the Lamb. Remember that when you stand before God on the last day, he sees not you, but Jesus Christ. In theology, we call this the hiddenness of the gospel. We are hidden in Jesus Christ. So when he looks at you and says, okay, big step forward, he sees Jesus Christ. Perfect. Pure virgin. Good. Well done. Faithful servant. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Because we are standing under his work and seen in his work, not in mine. And that's the picture that we're given here. That's who the 144,000 are, not people who didn't defile themselves. We all do. We're born in sin, right? But people who have been made right with Jesus Christ through the blood of the Lamb. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I want to close on this note because I think it's important to say this is we emphasize grace in our church, and we ought to. We ought to emphasize it. That's the only way that you'll stand on the last day before God. But notice what the people of God do. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Sometimes we cheapen grace. We cheapen grace when we say, okay, good, I'm standing under the Lamb, I'm good, I can live, how, live however I want to. No, no, no. The call is to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, to live according to his way. If there's one thing I would say to the, to the Lutheran church as a body is, learn the way of Jesus Christ. Immerse yourself in it. Make it that path that you follow because it is a way that will lead, just like the words of life did, to joy and peace before God. But don't just say, yep, I'm a Christian, I got myself baptized, good to go. Don't do that. Immerse yourself. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Live according to his way, but stand under his grace. There's a balance there that when put together is a beautiful. Let's pray. Lord God. Uh